Hello and welcome back to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast, brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jassani. Today on the podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different and um, actually something that was requested by one of our listeners. So rather than talking about a clinical topic, we're instead going to chat about uh, life sort of in the early days as a new graduate vet. And to do so, I'm joined by Tom Cardi. Um, Tom has just finished his first year as a resident in neurology and neurosurgery and was also an intern here um, at the RBC a couple of years or so back, was it? Yep, yeah. two years, two, no, three years ago. Three years ago, cool. So, look, mate, thanks very much um, for, for joining me today. We, we won't recount the tale, but we've had a bit of a challenge in scheduling mm-hmm. and meeting to do this podcast, so I appreciate you, you coming along. Um, before we start, I, I guess you're, I'm going to ask you to give us a brief bio of your career so far, and I think, you know, you mentioned it before we started recording, actually, that one of the, the interesting things, I think, about having you do this podcast is that you're not... Uh, how can I put this politely? You're not quite as young as some no, new graduates no, might be. <laughs> I'm, I'm slightly jaded. You're slightly jaded. Slightly graying. I, I said to you, I think that actually you're going to hopefully offer us some insights that, that people that have um, that are for different age group may not quite have achieved yet in their lives. So, anyway, could you mind giving us like a brief bio of your of your career so far? Yeah. So, as you said, my name is Tom. Um, as things stand, I think I'm 41 years old and have <laughs> been, yeah, <laughs> I don't like to think too much, so. And I've been a vet for four, five years, something like that. Um, I came to um, veterinary medicine in a fairly convoluted route. Um, I wasn't particularly academic, so I went off to do a degree at Reading in zoology. Um, I then started to pull my socks up a bit, and I did a um, a PhD at Cambridge, and then I went to work in the city for eight years. Um, If there's anyone out there listening who has worked in the city, they'll know that it's hugely unrewarding um, and quite stressful, so I decided to get back to what I wanted to do Mm. as a child and um, went off to work with animals. I was in a dolphin trainer for three years, and after that, that really pushed me on to try and want to get this veterinary qualification. So finally, after going sort of around the houses at age 30, 32 or something like that, I came here to the RVC. Um, <clears throat> you know what? We could just spend the next hour talking about you and forget where it's... No, but um, so a couple of questions, really, just just for my own interest, I suppose. What what was your PhD in? PhD was in pharmacology, so it was to do with Alzheimer's disease and how you know um, different cellular receptors respond to to drugs and also to electrolytes, um, for example, calcium. And um, in the city, are we talking sort of stockbroking? That kind of, that kind yeah, of I'm afraid so. It was oh. mostly to do with the pharmaceutical industry, and it was um, all in mergers and acquisitions. So, for example, um, when Glaxo Welcome merged with SmithKline Beecham, that was us. Oh. Fascinating. Um, cool. So, um, I guess one of the questions that that um, because we're going to try and focus these podcasts on somebody that is just graduated and we know mm-hmm. that we've just had our own graduation day yesterday yep. yes, here and, and so on um and one of the questions is well you know how do you go about and obviously a lot of them will have had this already and that already faced this problem but how do you go about deciding um you know what your first job is going to be now for me that was something that i dealt with you know like 15 years ago i think it was um 
And it was at a time where, again, you can tell me more maybe, but it was a time when I think that it was easier to be selective about your jobs. I mean, my understanding nowadays is that the pressure for jobs is greater and that there may not be enough of them. And again, I might be wrong about that. But um, at, back then, I think there was, there was greater ability to choose. And I, I turned down a couple of job offers, actually, before I finally um, accepted one. And obviously, the one I accepted... I did because of the things that I thought were important to me in terms of the sort of place I wanted to work and so on. Um, and it turned out pretty well, to be honest. I mean, I, I did have to move to a new town. I didn't know anybody there, um, you know, no friends, no family and all that kind of stuff. So I was potentially challenging myself from those points of view. Um, but, it, you know, it turned out pretty well and I, and I kind of developed a social circle. We used to go out with people from work quite a lot mm. and very quickly made some good friends that even to this day, you know, I left years ago, but I still keep in touch with them and so on. And as I say, that was at a time when I could turn down two jobs and then take the third one and, and it was possible to do that kind of thing. So what, what are your own experiences? How did you choose your own job, your first job? And also, do you know more about the current, current situation than maybe yep. I do? That would be great. Yep. So the first thing to say is that in any job in any country, in any profession, there is no such thing as the perfect job. Mm. Um, and, and any graduate will never find something that is absolutely perfect in all facets of, of employment. Um, and as you correctly say, the pressures on, on graduates these days are phenomenal. We're turning out you know, 1,600 to 2,000 highly qualified, highly motivated vets um, each year. Um, and the, the pressures for jobs, certainly in, in the ones that I've applied for, they'll be interviewing 10, 12 people for right. each position. So, so it's, it's the same pressure as there is to get into vet school to get your first position. Um, things that people think about when they get their new job, obviously, first and foremost, they think about money. Um, actually, the salaries for anything that I tried to apply for were, were pretty similar. Um, and as a new graduate, I don't know if it's ever been mentioned, but y the package that you're looking at is, is probably somewhere in the sort of twenty-five to 30,000 range. You're not going to become hugely wealthy from mm. this profession. And, but there wasn't much differentiation between salaries. Where the differentiation comes is in the practice itself, the values of the practice, and also the staff that you have to support you. Um, so my decision was based on picking a practice from where I'd grown up. Um, I'd grown up in, in Hertfordshire all my life, so I knew five or six practices in the area that had good reputations um, and did good veterinary work. Um, I then did something which, which most people do do, but an amazing number of my colleagues um, skipped, and that's to visit visit not just for a day, but see if you can do some EMS placements there for a couple of weeks. Mm. Um, try and develop yourself a home practice so you really understand what you're getting yourself into because if anyone comes to visit me in my current role and they stay for a day, it's a very polished, sort of brushed view that they're getting. Whereas if you're there for a week or mm. two weeks, you really get to understand um, what you're dealing with. The other thing that um, was important to me is the level of support. I wanted people who were of similar age and ability who I could turn to and talk to as equals. And I also wanted um, a supervisor or a head vet who would come in late at night and help with the GDVs, the difficult caesareans, um, to get me through those first weeks. So there's a, there's a huge amount to consider. Um, but I guess it's important, one of the most important things is, is just spend time with the practice. And I suppose, you know, like you said already, it's, um, 
it's a challenge if you if there aren't enough jobs to choose from to yep. then have these sort of important criteria really where you can you can try and put yourself. I mean, as you say, absolutely rightly, there isn't going to be a perfect job, but there are things that you can think about to try and make it as good an experience as yep. it could be. But with the pressure of not having enough jobs, maybe you don't feel like you have the luxury of being selective in that way. Right? Yeah. It's a bit of and a kind of vicious circle in a way. that You will have to compromise, and that's as you did. You either compromise on location, um, you will compromise on the amount of on-call you work or, or, or are yeah. asked to do. Yeah. Um, there's all different bits and bobs. But, but ultimately, you know, every box has a lid. You, you will find a position that you fit into. Cool, excellent. And... Um, one of the things that um, I know that, well, I guess I wanted to um, touch on it here specifically because it's something that's particularly close to my heart, but, but also it was something that I never, I don't know, I might be misremembering, but I don't remember particularly getting much in the way of kind of communication skills training. And I think for me, one of the things that, um, or one of the times when I suppose that becomes accentuated in the scenario where you're facing doing a euthanasia um, and, you know, the first time I did a euthanasia after graduation was on my own. You know, was, I wasn't, there was no colleague, veterinary surgeon colleague in the room or anything like that. Um, and it was sort of really a case of, well, I think how I performed then was a, a, it depended on a combination of my own personality and what I'd seen in my previous experiences and just what felt right to do and all those kinds of things. But I don't, I don't know that we particularly got any sort of... Um, you know, teaching about those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So communication skills in general, but in particular in those very sensitive times and moments. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, did you get any of that kind of training in your time here at that? Where, where, it was here that you were at vet school, wasn't yep. it? Yeah. Did you get any communication training kind of during that time here? And we, leading um, on from that, how did you feel when you dealt with your first sort of euthanasia as, as a sole vet? And, and how do you feel like you were prepared for that? Yep. That's a good question. Um, so the RVC, even when I was here, and certainly to a greater extent now, does work hard on its communication um, skills. We have um, practical OSCEs, we have a number of lectures, and almost in every module there's an element of, of practice communication. So I do think students are, are slightly better prepared than you know perhaps they were in your day that being said euthanasia is a hugely sensitive issue and you can practice it as much as you want kind of in your mind but until you get to the first one or in some days you will have six i think the worst i ever had was six in a day um you'll never really understand how you're going to cope and i was reflecting on this this yesterday when you um, told me what we're going to talk about and I'm afraid I'm a very sort of logical person, and I tried to think about it from an, a number of um, viewpoints. The first is the practicalities of the euthanasia. Um, you need to try and set yourself up such that everything is going to go as smoothly as possible. That's having drugs on hand, having the animal catheterized, and making sure there's someone there to help you because it, it is a difficult time and you will need someone to hold and, and fetch and carry. The other thing which is often forgotten is uh, the sort of legal aspect, making sure that you're transparent about what's going to happen and in the gentlest fashion possible, explaining to the client what you're going to do and just checking with them why you're doing it because it's important that they're, they're sort of invested in this procedure and finally, obviously, you've got the emotional side. Even though you're 
stressed, you've got five minutes to perform this euthanasia. This is probably someone that they've been hanging out with for the last 11, 12, however many years and is an integral member of their family. And, and that's the single most important bit, to respect the fact that this animal, when he or she is gone, will have massive repercussions on their family. Mm. Um, it's a big chunk that's taken out of their life. So everyone has to be um, sort of... You do have to invest a bit of yourself in doing it, and, and ultimately you are going to get upset. Doing so it. the stuff that you just said to me, do you feel that, that people try to communicate that to you during your time as an undergraduate? And I know you, I take on board your point that you can only be so prepared, but do you feel like anyone actually had that conversation with you, or mm, not so much? Not that sticks into my mind. Um, um, I guess the other thing I wanted to say about that, because you know, completely separate to this, that this whole bereavement and euthanasia is an, an area of... Um, a lot of interest to in mine, but for the purposes of this podcast, we're not going to delve into that much further or any further, I think, because otherwise we could just talk about that as well. I mean, I think some of the points you made are, are fantastic, and um, there is a bunch of other things that we could both add, which we'll do maybe another podcast on some other day. But I guess to make it a bit more of a general question, and what was what sort of sense were you left with in the early days of being in practice? Were you there thinking, you know what, I feel like my time as a vet student and I feel like my time on EMS has prepared me quite well for what I'm now having to do? Or did you find yourself thinking, God, I, wasn't, I don't feel very well prepared for this? That's a more general level question. Do you want the truthful answer? Of course. Yeah, yeah we're I've, all about the truth here. <laughs> I, I, felt, um, I felt, despite having worked in some of the most stressful roles in the world, some of, you know, with people and animals before, in those initial weeks, I felt hugely out of my depth. Okay. Um, if you're seeing, you know, 20 clients a day um, in gaps of seven or 10 minutes and each of them has a life story and a problem and you have to quickly think about the clinical diagnosis and the treatment and the follow-up, it's, it's stress that is, is very, very difficult to cope with. And that's as a, you know, a, a, a mature individual that's worked before. If you're a 23, 24-year-old, it must be a very daunting prospect. And um, were there particular bits of that that you felt more or less prepared for? So did you feel like, well, the clinical things were okay, but the dealing with the clients was a challenge or the yeah. fitting it in the time was a challenge? Or what, were there particular bits that you felt more or less prepared for? Yeah. Was it just a general sense of I think, unpreparedness? I mean, that's a good question. The, the RVC prepares you clinically well. When you come out of this establishment, you can diagnose your kidney disease, you can work up your skin disease. Um, I think I think the biggest learning curves is is dealing with the establishment that you're working in, their little nuances and the um, the little inter sort of personal um, things that go on, and also just the sheer volume of clients you mm. see. Um, we have the luxury of working up. I still have the luxury of working up cases now in an hour. Mm. If I've given seven minutes to do the same case, trust me, I will start to flap and panic a bit. Yeah, and. Um I guess one of the things that that leads on well from that then is if you found yourself quite often in a situation where you felt out of your depth or a bit flustered or whatever it might be, obviously it follows on from that that we would like those people to be able to turn to somebody for support and guidance, right? Mm -hmm. So um, did you have people within your practice that you felt um, you could turn to for that kind of support and guidance? Yeah, I did. Um, I was very lucky in that, that 
although they were frequently busy and as rushed off their feet as I was, they would always spend two minutes to guide me on a drug dosage, to come and have a look down a microscope, to poke and prod something that I was really, you know, unfamiliar with. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was lucky in that year that I did have that support. And I suppose to take, just to take us back to the point that you made before about part of that practice selection is to try and get a sense of... Um, what kind of support and guidance you're going to get if you mm. end up working in that practice, right? I mean, my first job, um, they hadn't had a new graduate there for, I think it was about 10 years because the one that had come 10 years previously had just not coped. It was, um, at the time, it had like the seventh biggest small animal caseload for a first opinion in the country. So it was very busy. Did some referral, did some first opinion, mm. you know, all that kind of stuff. So as a new graduate going into that environment, if you didn't have the right temperament or ability to cope, um, I think you you know that's probably they they got burned by their last new graduate just not being able to cope really and then decided they weren't going to have another one and then ten years later decided to give me a job. Um, but again, I you know I was in the position where I was able to turn to colleagues for help as I needed it and a, and a variety of colleagues from people that were sort of a bit more specialist to mm-hmm. people that were fantastic long term general practitioners and everything in between. But obviously, I didn't really know that when I took that job, right? I took the job because it seemed like a great place for you know a new graduate to be working. I was a bit dazzled by the the environment and the facilities and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so thankfully, it turned out that I did have the support too. But I, I think that was probably the bit that, um, I you know, the stuff that you're saying, which I think is completely just is completely reasonable. I for that job, I didn't have any of that. I'd never been there before. I'd never done EMS with them. I literally was looking for jobs and then this one was there and you know so so I think it could have gone the other way for me thankfully it didn't but I could have been burned badly mm. and had no support so um so it's good to know that and I think it's just it's important to re-emphasize that people need to need to bear that in mind um the, the one thing I would say to that is is also to remember that your it is ultimately your employer's job mm. to support you if if they truly are vested in their practice and providing mm. good health care for their animals they will want to support you and integrate you into that team. So it's a real sort of um, good sounding block, as it were, for the whole whole practice. For the kind of culture and yeah, ethos absolutely. of the practice. And I guess that takes us, again, right back to, you know, doing EMS, being exposed to the place beforehand, getting yeah. a sense of that thing. And, and also I know of people, you know, I know places where part of that EMS experience or visiting pre-job, applying for a job experience is... You know, no holes barred conversations with the staff in the practice yep. to find out what the truth of the place yep. is. And I definitely know people who have had that experience and then actually said, "I'm not applying here because yep. for what they've been told." Um, and it's not always that it's it's you know, oh, the, the boss is horrible or something like that. It may just be, well, actually, this is a reality of life here in this environment, yep. and they think, well, actually, it's not something that I feel comfortable with. So, so it's about being informed, right? But I guess it's a general rule for life in general. But, um, <laughs> rule of thumb. <laughs> Um, so I guess the other question also that's in terms of looking for support and guidance, you've obviously got internal support within your practice, right? And again, mm-hmm. we know that that comes in different forms, really. So there are maybe more junior, less experienced people that you feel more comfortable yeah. with having some conversations with and more senior people that you might turn, turn to at other times. But what about out with of your practice? Do the, the people that you graduated with or people of a similar sort of level of experience, did you maintain contacts with those kinds of people? or? Um, yeah, I did. I mean, uh, I, I had a number of support networks. First and foremost, um, I had my wife, who was yes. also a vet, yeah. um, so I had a kind of an at-home resource. <laughs> um, 
I had a couple of friends from from college, um, and they helped me. But also on tricky cases, um, I actually emailed back to the RVC directly. So I would email surgeons or specialists, and for sure, if if, if you know that it's an RVC alumni, someone that you might have taught or worked with that's calling you for help, mm. um, e- even now I work hard to try and get back to them as soon as possible mm. to, to give them support. And um, so, because I guess one of the things that... Um that I wanted to make sure we mentioned was obviously, like you say, you you had you know your wife, a lovely person, and um, that <laughs> is an in-house support structure, in-house encyclopedia, um, and you know, but there there are obviously people that are not in that position, um, and you also had, I guess, the, the luck is the wrong word. You went about it in the right way to make sure that you stayed within an area that you're familiar with, an yeah. area that you're comfortable with, and all that kind of stuff. Um, are you aware of, let's say, you know, I end up isolating myself miles away from anybody I know and I'm getting a little bit desperate for lack of support and I'm thinking, I wonder how I can get hold of people that might be in a similar position to me or similar stage of experience and be a similar age as me. Are there are they resources that you're aware of that people can use or not so much? Um, I, don't, I don't know about getting contact as in someone to actually speak to. I mean, I definitely use the... Um RCVS website to look at, at documented resources mm. and also the um, BSAVA um, there for sort of documented resources but I never thought I guess I never felt that out of my depth mm. um, or I never felt I didn't have someone to turn to in practice or home such that I had to try and contact someone I'd never spoken to before. Cool so I guess um, you know like I said I, I again never I uh, was at a time I don't know how much of these things were available anyway but I you know um, so one, one place I guess we should mention is the, uh, the BVA which is the British Veterinary Association has um, a young vet network which basically has kind of regional Groups and mm-hmm. you can have face-to-face meetings. So basically, you can meet people that are in similar positions to yourself. Some will be a little bit older, had a bit more experience than you. Others might be a little bit behind you. Um, but they also have like discussion forums and so on. Now, I can't personally vouch for how busy they are, how much they get used, or any of that kind of stuff. And obviously, it is a BVA facility, so you need to be a member of the British Veterinary Association to use that. Um, there are also things, for example, and again, this is all very a very UK-focused conversation, but I'm sure that I hope that there will be similar things in, in other places. Um, so there's, there are free resources, for example, the vetgrad.com website that has a bunch of stuff on there. Um, and then obviously we're now in a day and age when we've got social media and you can potentially reach out to, to maintain relationships with, with people in, in that kind of way. Um, and then I suppose depending on the, the severity or the seriousness of your situation, and we know that, again, the veterinary profession, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's said about, you've talked already about how stressful it can be, but there's also, you know, um, a lot of people talk about depression, addiction, and all that kind of stuff. And there are resources made available um, to vets and vet nurses um, that they can contact. So. I think it's a matter of just, you know, you said that you were lucky enough in a position where you didn't necessarily feel the need to reach out beyond the circle of support that you had already established. And I guess it's just for people to be aware that should they feel that need, then they should be reaching out to kind of look for that support really yeah. rather than feeling that they kind of have to suffer no, suffer no. quietly in, in silence and unhelped really. Um, because I think, you know, it's, a, it's one of those things that 
you, technology is hopefully helping people to communicate with each other and stay in touch with each other. But I don't think it's a fail-safe mechanism, and I think you can still be very isolated yeah. despite Facebook or Twitter or other yeah. social media networks existing in the world, right? So, I, I mean, I, I stand by the judgment that, the, that there is no other profession in the world where mm. uh, such a young person will be faced with so much responsibility so soon after graduating. So, it, as you say, it is important to keep it all in perspective, whether that's booking a night away or looking forward to a movie, any sort of outlet that you can get to make sure that you're you're not completely focused on work um, yeah. and keep it enjoyable, because it is enjoyable, ultimately. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, obviously, I've you know, been around a while and have seen several generations of students and interns and keep in touch with, with some of them. And you see a lot of them go through peaks and troughs and yeah. periods where they're more disillusioned and then they yeah. find another perspective that allows them to start enjoying it again. I was having a, you know, a uh, Facebook messaging conversation with someone very similarly. She's been graduated for sort of three or four years. Um, I heard through the grapevine that she was struggling a little bit with, you know, staying motivated and so on. Um, reached out to her and she was like, you know what, I've sort of had a new perspective now and I'm actually really enjoying it again um, yeah. because I've sort of readjusted the way in which I approach my work and so on. So I think these are things that, again, um, I suppose you could say it's good that actually people are talking, and we're talking about it on this podcast, for example, that you know hopefully thousands of people will listen to, that they're loose to having these conversations and not just ducking the issues and sort of pretending like it doesn't exist. I think the other thing I wanted to mention, actually, though, was I don't know if it's your perception, but just keeping an eye on the job situation and what, and what, um, what is out there, I do get the sense that there's more and more people that are sort of trying to establish some kind of more formalised breaking in of new graduates in a way so like years mentorship or that yeah. kind of thing that's a bit more I suppose akin to what happens when you graduate as a as a doctor that you don't just start work the next day but you actually have some kind of break in periods depending on what you're doing um, are you aware of any of those I mean, I, you know. yeah I um I've been quite surprised by a couple of them actually because you're aware of sort of um referral center um internships and mm. and um, intern programs um, also there's obviously been some of the larger um, what's the word I'm looking for corporate practice internships but now there's there's local mm. um, practices offering sort of internships and that's that's a fantastic opportunity for getting people um, into the profession and uh, you know shoring up their skills but also part of me is still slightly concerned that that may be another excuse to squeeze salaries Mm. further down um so it's important that you know those schemes deliver on what they offer for example the internship here you come out a fairly polished and, and complete vet and it's important to make sure that the these other schemes are, are delivering just like that yeah i think that's, that's a very that's a very good point really is that um it can seem from the outside that it's a totally altruistic thing to be doing but yeah. until you've actually had the detail of what's occurring and talk to people that have been through yeah. it to actually know whether it is entirely about and altruism it, or actually... Yeah. Um, and is there a job at the end? Is there yeah. a permanent position or is it just a year, um, a year's training? And I think the other thing is we're probably... I guess we're, we're guilty of generalising across different um, offerings in a way because I suppose there's an internship, end of story, and then there's you have a job with us but your first year is going to be a sort of more controlled, structured yeah. break-in period. 
which I guess that is hard to argue with maybe. Yeah. Um, but the internship that may not lead to something is another conversation as yeah. well. So, And if, if you have a practice that offers to evaluate you at three months, six months, a year, take it because any feedback you can get and any formalised support um, will always be valuable. Very good. Um, so kind of one of the other things that, um, that I think we should talk about a little bit about is the, um, the PDP, um, which <laughs> we have here in the UK. Um, just to remind our listeners, and, and you know, if there's any that haven't heard of the PDP, then the PDP stands for the Professional Development Phase. Um, I'm going to quote directly here from the RCVS website, so excuse me if it sounds like I'm re- reading, because I am. Um, so it says, the veterinary degree equips graduates with the essential day one competences needed for safe practice immediately on graduation, but these are only a starting point. The new graduate's professional competence needs to be further developed in a structured manner during the first year or so in clinical practice until they can perform confidently as a fully effective professional in the workplace. The PDP is the first step in the new graduate's continuing professional development. To complete the PDP, the new graduate must keep a brief, accurate and honest record of their clinical cases against a list of clinical skills and procedures and must reflect on how they are progressing in meeting the year one competencies. New graduates should use the PDP component of the professional development record to record their progress in achieving the year one competencies. The PDP is a self-assessment system that aims to instill a conscious and conscientious approach to professional learning. And uh, this bit I'm not reading, but just to say that all newly qualified graduates are required to complete the PDP regardless of where they are qualified. Um, so, look, obviously the PDP was introduced a long time after I graduated, but I guess I wanted to ask you, firstly, did you have to do it? I'm guessing that it was part of your, your life. Um, and secondly, what do you think about, you know, the, the intention behind it? Is it honourable intention? Uh, what do you think about the practicalities of it? How did you find doing it? And then any other thing you'd like to say would be great. Mm. I have a, I have, <laughs> I'm so looking at your face here. You're looking a bit I have cynical, a but awful <laughs> confession to make. In a, I did complete my PDP um, and got all the allocated fields completed, but I haven't yet had it signed off. Okay. So I, I snuck off into specialism before it signed off, and actually I have to have it signed off before September this year because my understanding from the letter that was sent to me is that the PDP is changing quite significantly okay. in um, September, so there'll be some new, new guidelines. That said, um, the PDP on the one hand is straightforward because... A lot of the cases that you're required to see, you will see in, in daily life, and you'll have no trouble um, completing your um, allocated quota. Some of the cases, for example, fixing um, orthopedic fractures, um, caesareans on cows, that sort of thing, you're never going to achieve. So it is important that both you and your boss... Um, recognise what is appropriate and realistic for your first year in practice. Um, The other way that it was actually quite useful is there were certain bits and bobs where I was lagging behind and I found that if I discussed those with my boss I could use that as a gentle lever to to do some more abdominal surgery or soft tissue surgery. So so in that sense it worked okay. Um, And like I mean in terms of the sort of the the ethos behind it do you think it's a hard to argue with aspiration or do you think it's one of those things because i mean i've just sat, sat and read the spiel i didn't have to do this um some of what it says 
sort of seems in keeping with what we were talking about before about sort of breaking in new graduates and making sure that they that they continue to progress and develop mm. in a way that they're comfortable to work with and all that it sounds in theory like it's i guess you know why would you argue with it um i don't know what demand extra demand it places on people practically with their time and having to actually is it a constant pressure and time pressure or actually do people embrace it and think well i guess i'm aware we're generalizing as well but it's um it's, it's a kind of mixed bag. I, I know people that, well, the majority of people pass their PDPs, pass is the wrong word, they complete their PDPs very easily. The natural caseload that you have um, lends itself to completing um, um, the PDP. But I also know one or two people who've actually been pulled up during that first year um, by their bosses when they've been discussing the PDP and have been asked to change the way they're doing surgery or change the way that they're, they're uh, approaching cases. So although I think at, at its base level it's very much a box-ticking exercise to, to satisfy the RCVS and the RCVS requirements, in some cases it can serve, and I guess especially if there was a formalised feedback at the practice, mm. it can serve to flag up areas where a graduate can be falling behind. And um, so it's the boss, the boss down to the boss to assess, assess you completing your PDP. Yep. And so your boss has to sign it off. Um, <laughs> so it's, it, you know, I guess it's quite a nervy time. I, re- I remember having discussions about it. Um, and in general, it all goes very smoothly because your boss is aware that you've got to complete this. Um, you should be having a chat here and there about when it's got to be in and what you've got to do. But it's like anything which is slightly pressured, you're always going to feel a little bit stressed about having to complete it. And um, again, you know, we, we probably need a... Well, we do need a boss of a, of a few practices to come, to come and ask this question to. Because I guess one of my things that I wonder is how, how it was received by bosses when they were told that, you know, from this day all their future employees were going to be asked to yep. do this PDP thing and, and what they perceived that as being a good thing or a bad thing. Or, but I, I wouldn't necessarily ask you to comment on that unless no. you feel able to. I, <laughs> I, I would like to hope that they perceive it as a good thing, yeah. uh, a way of standardising the, the level of care that each graduate um, provides. Um, and the other thing that you've mentioned a couple of times in passing has been this idea of, of feedback and appraisal. Yeah. I'm getting the sense that you think that's quite an important yeah. part of the early life when you graduate. Yeah, I, uh, I 100% do. The, the, the first three months of your life as a new graduate in your new job are going to be spent just trying to get to work, get through your cases, get home and get everyone out safely. Um, it's only once you get to sort of six months a year that you're trying to think about, you know, how am I developing as a vet? Where am I going to go with this career? And what, what should I be doing? And in any profession, whether you're working for Sainsbury's on the bus, a big bank, you, you get feedback every, every six months. Yeah. And I am really sort of strongly in favour of, of vets receiving the same type of thing. And that's an opportunity for uh, your boss to talk about you and you to talk about your boss and the practice otherwise you know things things don't push on and it's probably fair to say that um you know we we say on these podcasts often about the variety we're sort of talking about practices but there's a huge variety of them um mixed small animal only heavily equine so there's in terms of what they do there but there's also where they're located their size who they're run by there's all these kinds of things so 
Um, it's, pro it's probably the case that there'll be some practices where what you're talking about exists brilliantly already and others yeah. that is just way off their consciousness. And I suppose what we're saying is that we need to get those ones to yeah. engage with these ideas more. And even if you yourself suggest to your boss, you know, uh, in a couple of months, can we have a pint at the pub or dinner at the pub and talk about how I'm doing and where I'm going. Yeah. It seems less threatening to them, less threatening to you, but it still serves the same purpose as making sure you're on the right track. Um, so I haven't published it yet, but it will be by the time I publish this one, maybe. Um, I did a podcast with um, a couple of the people here on EMS and trying to sort of maximise or improve the EMS experience for students and alongside that what the practice could get out of EMS as well but um but yeah I mean the whole idea of feedback at that stage as well was something that was that they brought up as they as they perceived to be something that's quite important to improve mm. the student experience and again I guess if we're going back to the situation where you might be looking at working in a practice that you've done EMS in I suppose if you do if that practice is one where you get good feedback as an EMS student I suppose that might be a good marker that you might also then go on and get that sort of feedback and that same approach might then apply to your life as a as a new employee yeah. in, in that practice as well. So it sounds like this whole kind of... Um, but I suppose it's an obvious thing to say, but, but feedback just for its own sake, like as a kind of token gesture, is, I suppose neither here nor there really. It has to be something that yeah. both parties are invested in. Yep, yeah. and absolutely. There's got to be sort of milestones set for the future, something you can both aim towards to try and bring yourself and the practice on. Otherwise, as you say, it's just words. Yeah, and, and, and at the same time, without, I guess, overcomplicating it and increasing everyone's already pressured workload. Um, so the other thing that um, I wanted, the final thing I guess really wanted to ask you about was you obviously went on, was it a year that you were in practice? Yeah, one year. One year. <laughs> um, and then you went on, and I guess you've also got your, your missus, and she was in practice for two years? Two years. Two years. Um, and you both actually went on and did um, an internship. And I guess I should say really that internships have obviously been around in North America for a very long time and have also become increasingly widespread here. In the UK, I would say probably in the last 15 years or so. I mean, when I graduated, you struggled really to find an internship program over here. And, you know, we've obviously touched on, on those already. Um, I think it's fair to say that we've pretty much reached a point now where you really can't go on to get a residency and then embark on specialization without having done an internship. Mm. Um, and, you know, in some cases, and we know people that, that have had to do a couple of internships. So, you know, you can get internships that are general rotating ones where you rotate through different disciplines and we obviously do that here and so do a number of other places and then you can get sort of uh, speciality specific internships so you can be a surgery intern or yeah. an ECC intern or whatever now again we don't have any of well we do actually we have some here but there are other places that also have those and again in America there's a number of them um, so depending on what you want from your life, I suppose, whether or not you do an internship, whether it's a good idea for you or not, these are things that, um, that I guess are going to vary. But what, what were, and I think here, you know, you can, if you have any experiences from your, from your wife as well, that you'd like to chip in in terms of what sort of thought processes you both went through yeah. in terms of deciding to do internships and what were they about for you, that would be great. Yeah, it's probably a, probably a good comparison actually between myself and um, Fran. She had always wanted to be a specialist um, since 
she was she was very opposite to me. She was highly academically gifted, very motivated, very driven, and she knew she wanted to be a specialist. Consequently, um, after graduation, her first port of call was to apply for an internship right. and subsequently move on to her specialisation. From my perspective, I think I came out of um, my undergraduate degree not quite knowing where I wanted to go, but I knew that um, certainly the internship at the RVC offered me an opportunity to develop my skills under some amazing supervision and perhaps therefore get an idea of of where this career was going to take Mm. me. And it was only then that I subsequently got involved in research projects and different surgical procedures and and went on to do the neurology and neurosurgery. So uh, there are... The internship can serve a multitude of purposes. Um, And as we said earlier, it's it's not something to be undertaken lightly um, and it varies hugely by the institution that you're in. For example, the RVC interns, they always think... They've got it tough, and they've got a tough, <laughs> tough life. But yes. actually, it's the, it's the best job probably you'll ever have. And were you to compare that to a US internship or a private practice internship, it, it's a pretty rude awakening. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I guess I would just re- uh, sort of reinforce what you said. Really, I mean, in my time, I've worked with you know probably I think six generations of interns or something like that on and off, and. Absolutely, they, they come for a variety of reasons, the ones that you've touched on already, and they go on to do a variety of things. I mean, I meet people that come to intern programs absolutely convinced they're going to specialise and then finish their intern program, go out into practice and never look back. And I met other people, a bit like you, that sort of came not really knowing and they were just trying to explore. Mm. Um, you know, I guess we should say that, that depending on what you plan to do, internships in themselves can be fantastic experiences, you've already said, and it doesn't have to be a means to any end, really. It can be something that actually is just very interesting. You learn a lot. You consolidate some skills and so on. Um, and I, I guess it's difficult because we can't really generalise because, again, we're talking about internships like they're one thing and, and you've already you know, said very well about how they, they can vary. But um, I suppose I would say that I haven't met somebody. They maybe, maybe they did feel that way, but they didn't want to say. But um, I don't think I've met anybody that ever said to me, you know what, I wish I'd never done that internship. No. Like, I think it's... Oh, absolutely Is that your, your experience as well, that most people are glad they did it? Yep. I mean, where else can you... You know, it's almost like doing a little master's on top of your, your undergraduate degree. You come out with a, an additional level of skills that, that you can then take forward. Um, and you, the cases that you're exposed to during your internship are just amazing, fantastic cases, exciting stuff. And because you're qualified, you're now starting to take part and help in the care of those animals. Mm. It's good stuff. Yeah, awesome. Um, I think that's probably. I think we've probably covered everything that we need to talk about. Was there anything else that you? I mean, these podcasts are um, the audience is split really between undergrad students vets in practice, national and international, really. So there's quite a lot of different people that that listen to these podcasts. Um, And I guess, is there anything else that you feel that we haven't touched on that people that are either in their undergrad years or just about to start work that, you know, that we we have overlooked discussing? I know that we've sort of coursed through quite a lot of things that are probably (laughs) big topics in their own Mm. right. But do you think we've we've covered everything or is there anything else that you want to mention? Yep, I think we've covered most of it. I guess I guess it's reiterating what we said earlier, which is is if you're a new graduate or you're about to graduate, you're going to go out into a fantastic profession where you do a lot of good. You're not going to become rich, 
Um, you're going to be very stressed. You're going to be very tired on occasions. But I think it's, it's important to understand that there's a huge amount of positives that come out of the work you do, and you need to keep things in perspective that, that ultimately we are doing just a job, and it's important to enjoy the company of your friends, your beer, your holidays, and, and make sure that you're, you're living a bit of life as well. Yeah, and I guess, um, you know, like I'm, I, would, I would just add on before we end just that thing that we talked about before, that it, if anybody sort of feels really isolated, um, emotionally distraught, any of those kinds of things, that it's really important that, that the days when that was looked on as, I don't know, whatever the right phrase is, but with scepticism or like that that was being unreasonable or that, you know, as I just sort of man up, woman up and get yeah. on with this sort of thing. We, that we can't do try that to anymore. move away from that kind of attitude. Yeah, um, absolutely. So that there, there, there are places to reach out for help and that they should feel very comfortable yep. reaching out for help and like 100%. they don't have to kind of cope on their own. Um, yeah. Because I think that's one of the... I think that's one of the things that then this whole sort of, you know, vets becoming disillusioned and vet nurses becoming disillusioned. I think that's a huge part of it is having to cope a lot and not yep. get support. And then compassion fatigue, again, is something else that you've, you've touched on in terms of trying to make sure that you get the opportunities to, you know, to revitalize your battery and, and re-energize and, and all that kind of stuff to make sure that people are taking those opportunities to to recharge um and actually you know like again i I don't want to go off on a huge tangent but it's a very similar conversation to that they have in human medicine we have our own different challenges in a way but still it's an emotionally challenging job that the doctors will do as well and that same conversation about recharging your battery um i think is something that it's probably a very important message to be giving out there all right cool fantastic um to the listeners as always then do feel free to get in touch and provide your feedback um As always, if you want to have any other topics that you'd like us to do a podcast on, then do let me know. Um, You can email me directly at sjasani at rbc.ac.uk. On the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page, there's a photo album that has links to these podcasts. And you can tweet us at Royal Vet College using the hashtag SAClinPod. So I'd just like to say thank you very much to Tom coming along and talking about these things so honestly. And um, until next time, then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.